I want to just relate a little bit of history, if I may. When I was uh, first ordained in 1985, as Nikki said, as a curate here at HTB, I remember preaching my first sermon. And uh, we were doing a series on Hebrews, and I'd got to the bit in Hebrews 11 where it was God's people, uh, thank you, my darling, God's people facing persecution. And uh, the title of my talk was Sawn in Two. It was sort of a promising title as the first talk that you were going to give. Actually, it slightly matched what I was feeling because I was so nervous about preaching here. I remember praying on my bike as I was biking here that I'd get knocked off because I thought I'd prefer to go to A&E and spend a couple of months in plaster than having to preach here. Well, today is my last sermon as a curate at HTB, 37 years later. And I I don't know whether that's a record in the Church of England, being curate in the same place for that long. But my title today is Joined Together. And I use that title because I want to talk about relationships and marriage. Uh, Sarah and I are coming up to a very significant 50-year anniversary. Hang on. Hold on. You don't know what it's for yet. Lovely. Thank you you so much for clapping. But the anniversary in three weeks' time to the day will be 50 years since I fell in love with Scylla. So you can clap to that if you like. Now, Uh, I was 18 years old. Uh, In those days, I had a full head of hair and a car, both of which I think slightly helped Scylla to fall in love with me, same time that I fell in love with her. She was just uh, 17. And I remember after spending two weeks together in next-door holiday cottages, uh, Scylla had to go back to her family home in Scotland. And oh gosh, I was so lovesick. And I remember just when I got her first letter, reading it and rereading it, and that feeling inside me, uh, I don't know how to describe it, a sort of tickly feeling, you know, sort of, oh, it was just um, amazing. 18 months later, Scylla and I both fell in love with Jesus. And it was after uh, a series of talks, the end of a talk, we both came forward, we knelt down, and side by side, we gave the rest of our lives to Jesus. And sort of true to her character, she was in there, full on, absolutely going to go for it. She made up her mind, that was it. I was more tentative. And I remember, even when I was praying, I was thinking, well, Lord, if, if nothing changes, if nothing happens as a result of what I've just prayed, over the next two weeks, then I'll know it's not real. I'm just sort of making it all up. So I'll go back to living my life just as it was before, which I thought was fine. That was on the Saturday night. On the Monday morning, Sarah had by this time, gone back to where she was studying. 
And I was in the library, and I was reading and preparing an essay, and the speaker who we'd heard on the Saturday night was doing one last talk at our university. And I remember I, I just, I couldn't wait to hear him speak about Jesus again. I kept checking my watch. I couldn't concentrate on my books. I just had this longing to hear more about Jesus. And as I thought, suddenly towards the end of the morning, I thought, oh my goodness, something has changed. I've never felt that way before. And the closest words that I can get to describing it is, I fell in love with Jesus. And ever since that time, Silla and I have been passionate about helping people with their relationships, uh, their relationship with Jesus. We ran Alpha here for five years before we handed it on to Nikki and Pips, and we loved helping people discover a relationship with Jesus and helping them to grow in that relationship. And then helping people with their relationships with others, whether they were going out, whether they were friends, whether they were married, whether they were parents. Now, I tell you that story of us falling in love with each other and then with Jesus, because I think that's what happened to this Samaritan woman that Jesus met at the well. She fell in love with Jesus when she believed and she experienced, as Jesus said, that same water becoming in her a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And I realized later, that's what I'd experienced when I was in the library, the Holy Spirit, this water welling up inside me, giving me that huge excitement to know more about Jesus. Just as it caused a change for me, it caused a massive change in this uh, woman. This woman who'd experienced so much pain in her life, so many broken relationships. She'd had five husbands previously. So much, no doubt, disappointment and rejection, and I suspect with it a loss of hope, and most probably a loss of trust in other people, especially her trust in men. And quite possibly ostracized by the rest of her community, by her people in her town. And I remember once looking at a painting of this scene in John 4. And as I looked, I realized that the artist had painted this Samaritan woman as heavily pregnant. And I thought, oh gosh, that could well be the case. And she's with a man who is not her husband. And quite possibly this woman was so embarrassed and so full of shame that she didn't come to the well at the time when people normally came in the cool of the day, in the morning or evening. We're told she came at noon. And at noon she wouldn't expect to see anyone else from her community there. And that's where her encounter with Jesus takes place. <laughs> And there is a radical change in her. And far from uh, avoiding people, 
She then goes back to her town. She tells everyone about this man that she's just met. And then she brings her whole town out to meet Jesus. And we read a little bit further on in John 4. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's story. Now this this story is part of a nuptial nuptial theme that runs through the whole Bible, a theme that is about uh, marriage. And this theme is relevant to every single one of us here, whether we are single, whether we're married, whether we're divorced, whether or not we're in a relationship, whether or not we are parents. The Bible starts and ends with a wedding. And it's not just about human marriage, when I say this theme of marriage, but about our relationship with God. You see, God is described as our creator, our father, our king, but also he describes himself as our bridegroom. And then right in the middle of your Bible, there's a little book called The Song of Songs. And this is about a bridegroom and a bride who are deeply in love with each other. And it's the most beautiful book, most beautiful poem, full of this couple's love and desire and delight in each other. And as with any couple who are in love, wanting to be with each other. And this book is a picture of the relationship that God desires with every single one of us. A love relationship, of course, is always two-way. And the Song of Songs is both about the song of love that God sings over us and the songs that we sing to God. And I would encourage you, you you won't understand all of it. It it bears reading many times. But as you do so and you read it, you'll start to recognize some of the verses, some of the phrases from the Song of Songs in the worship songs that we uh, sing here as we express our love for Jesus. And it's significant that Jesus talks to this Samaritan woman about worship. I I just read this little phrase this last week. Love and worship touch the core of the human heart. Now, John picks up the nuptial theme that, that, as I say, runs through the Bible. If you just go back a couple of chapters in John chapter 2, you read of Jesus being at a wedding where they've run out of wine and he turns a whole mass gallons of water into wine. And John says, this is the very first sign (laughs) that Jesus used to show who he is and why he has come. And given that John only, only chooses seven different signs, seven miracles, you might ask, why does he choose this one? I mean, get the other miracles about healing a blind person, a lame person, a raising someone from the dead, but helping out a poor bridegroom at his wedding who's run out of wine. I know it's a bit embarrassing for him, but it doesn't seem on the same order of things. But it's because of this theme, theme of marriage. Then in John chapter 3, Jesus is described himself as the bridegroom. John the Baptist is the friend 
of the groom, as we might say, the best man, full of joy when he hears the, the groom's voice. And then we get to John chapter 4, this bit that we have read. And you might think, well, <laughs> this doesn't look like a very positive view of marriage. After all, this woman has had five husbands in her past. But what we can miss is that at the time and the context in which John was writing, this is a classic scene in storytelling of courtship and betrothal. You see, in, in the stories of the time, uh, a man and a woman would meet at a well. Uh, they, uh, they'd have a conversation. Then the, the woman would hurry away. Uh, then there'd be a meal and a betrothal. Well, it's not those in this case. But you see exactly that pattern happening if you're familiar with the Old Testament when Abraham sends his servant to find a wife for Isaac. Exactly this courtship and betrothal at a well. Same when Jacob goes to uh, and meets Rachel, who becomes his wife. And is Jesus to the surprise of his disciples when they come back and find him. It just comes to stuff the bit we read. They are amazed that he's talking with a woman, strange woman, a Samaritan woman at that, at a well. And no doubt to the shock of all of John's original readers, it's Jesus who is doing the courting. It's he who initiates the conversation with this uh, woman and he who puts himself in her debt by asking her for a drink. And Jesus, we discover, knows all about her. He has uh, words of knowledge about her past. Five husbands, man she's living with, not, a, not her husband. And what's so striking is that Jesus doesn't tell her off. He doesn't condemn her. He doesn't actually even tell her what she's to do about her domestic situation. <laughs> he just loves her. Draws her into this relationship of love with himself. Talks to her about his spirit of love within her that will well up, well up like a spring inside. And it's significant that this takes place at Jacob's well. You see, Jacob was sent on a journey by his father to seek a bride. And Jesus, the Son of God, has been sent on a journey by his father to seek his bride. And this woman that Jesus meets at the well, we might think, and we should think, gosh, this is one of the least likely people we would imagine to be the bride of the Son of God. She's been married five times, man living with not her husband. <laughs> but that makes Jesus number seven, the seventh man. And you may know this, that in the Bible, number seven is the perfect number. He is the one who will fulfill all her hopes all her dreams, all of her longings. And I think John is telling this story like this. So he wants to say, if this woman qualifies to be part of the bride of Christ, 
then we all qualify. Every single one of us, whatever is in our background. Now, just for a few minutes, because of this nuptial theme in the Bible and its huge significance, I, I want to just talk about the current situation that we face regarding marriage and relationships in today's society. And I think you will be aware, like I am, of, of the loss of confidence in marriage by many, many people around us, by a, a fear of commitment and especially a fear of committing to a relationship that is to be lifelong. And this fear, this nervousness about marriage has profound consequences, not just for family life, although it does for that, but also for how it affects our understanding of our relationship with God. Now, let me start on the family life side. Marriage is designed by God to be at the heart of the family, to provide a safe, secure environment for children to grow up in. Now, Sil and I know many single parents, some of you who, who are some who are here, and many over the years who've done the most wonderful job bringing up children on their own. And we know as parents, it's hard being parents. It's even harder if you're doing it on uh, your own. But we also know many children of single parents who've grown into wonderful, beautiful, mature adults, because, partially because their parents have done such a wonderful job. But at the same time, we also know that children, on average, fare best when they're brought up by their parents who are living together in a loving, committed relationship. And the commitment of marriage helps to hold parents together. Sil and I have been to China many times over the last 10 years, partially because the Chinese government has authorized for the marriage and pre-marriage courses and parenting courses to be run in China. And I remember on one of our very early visits, meeting a government minister who said this to us, we know that a strong society is built on strong families and strong families are built on strong marriages. And marriage is designed not just to provide a safe, secure environment for children to grow up in, but also designed by God to provide a role model for children of what an intimate, committed relationship looks like at close hand. A model for them of their relationships uh, in the future. Many years ago, Sil and I were having supper with an engaged couple who had just finished doing a pre-marriage course. And um, the, uh, the woman of this engaged couple, I'll, I'll call her Fiona, that wasn't actually her real name, uh, talked to us about how she was very nervous about marriage, or she had been very nervous about marriage, because her parents had divorced when she was 13 years old, and she talked about how it had really affected her badly. But she said, doing the pre-marriage course made her realize that marriage is not a matter of luck, if you happen to meet the right person. It's not a matter of just compatibility with the other person. It's not a matter of just feelings. Feeling in love is, is not enough. Rather, 
what she'd realized is that there are things you can do to build a healthy, loving marriage. And that gave her confidence going into marriage herself. And then I remember her saying this to us rather poignantly. I think if my parents had known what I now know, they would still be together. And I often think back to her words, and it's been part of why Sil and I have wanted to do everything that we can to help people to know what it takes to build a marriage, to, to have actually the biblical tools for a relationship, a loving, committed relationship. Let me have one last opportunity to say this while I'm on the stage here. Nikki said it already, but if, if you're wanting to explore marriage as a couple, if you're engaged to be married, please do the pre-marriage course. If you're married, whether you're in a strong marriage or you're struggling, whether you've been married a short or a long time, please do the marriage course. And the very best way to do these courses is to do them in person. We run them three times a year and Wonderful, wonderful thing for us is that there is a couple called Dave and Sophie Matthews. You may know them. Some of you will. One of our clergy couples here who are going to be taking over family life from us. And they're going to be running the pre-marriage course and the marriage course. And Scylla and I are so excited about that because we couldn't commend them too highly to you. In fact, we are sure that they are going to do a lot better job with these courses than we've done over the last 37 years. Uh, let, let me also say this, that despite having run the marriage course and the pre-marriage course for 37 years, Scylla and I do not have a perfect marriage. We've tried to sort of adjust things here and there through the years, but apparently, apparently, there are one or two things I do that irritate Scylla. I, I think very minor things, you know, tiny little things, but they, they, they do irritate her. And Scylla is particularly good at telling me when I have upset her. And Scylla's a passionate person, and she usually tells me very passionately and often quite loudly what I have done that has upset her or irritated her. And there was one occasion when we were... Um, oh, and one of my irritating habits for Scylla is that um, I tend to cut it rather fine if, I, if we're going to catch a plane. We've done quite a lot of travelling over the years. I just think it's a complete waste of time to spend any more time than you strictly need to at an airport. Scylla thinks rather differently. And there was one occasion in uh, Kuala Lumpur. We were flying from Malaysia into China, and um, we had cut it rather fine. And when we got to the airport, there was this incredibly long, snaking queue for security. And even I thought, oh gosh, I think we might have cut it a bit fine this time. We might miss the plane. I certainly didn't say that to Scylla, though. I didn't want to add any fuel to the fire. But Scylla was telling me very passionately and very loudly how we'd left it far too late. It was my fault. I always cut it far too fine as we were in this queue. And she carried on telling me for a little while as this queue was snaking backwards and forwards. And then suddenly we came next to this Chinese couple who looked up at us and said, you're Nikki and Sun Lee, aren't you? Uh, oh my goodness, my heart sank. And they said, we're doing the marriage course at our church. And I thought, oh no, you've heard our conversation for the last 10 minutes while you've been in this queue. 
So after that, I said to Scylla, darling, if we're, you know, if, if you're a bit irritated by something, could you do it with a smile on your face a little bit more quietly, please, in future? We're still working on that bit. But uh, <laughs> a marriage is always a work in progress. We need to invest. But you know, at the end of the day, the importance of marriage, important though it is for family life and for children, ultimately, the importance for all of us, whether or not we're married, lies in God's passion for us. Uh, some of the most profound and beautiful writing about marriage that I've ever read was by the last but one Pope, Pope John Paul II. And when he was a priest in Poland, it was in the 1960s, it was during the sexual revolution, and through his time, first then as a priest, then as a pope, through his papacy, he did a huge amount of talking about relationships, about marriage, about family. And my first introduction was reading a book called Love and Responsibility. And in it, he writes about the opposite of loving someone. And when I read I thought, I know what that is. It's obvious, hating someone. But I read on, and he said, the opposite of loving someone is using someone. Using them for your own ends. And then he goes on to describe marriage as a total donation of self. And he said, rather than using someone, marriage is about a couple giving themselves to each other. Just as you probably heard in a, in a marriage service where a couple say to each other, all that I am, I give to you. All that I have, I share with you. And the Pope writes that this is a picture of the gospel. And he cites Jesus' words at the Last Supper where Jesus said, this is my body given for you. And then Paul, writing to the Roman Christians, saying, give your bodies as a living sacrifice to God. And in a marriage, he said, as a couple, give themselves to each other. It's a picture of what Jesus has done for us. It's a picture of the gospel. And the thing I think I was most struck by reading the Pope's writing was, he said, the devil is out to destroy marriage, not just to divide families, well, certainly he's out to do that, or to uh, destroy society, but because he wants to remove this sign that God has put on the earth of his love, a sign of the gospel and as a married couple, give themselves in love to each other. They are a sign of God in his love, giving himself for each one of us. It's a sign that love relationship, God longs to draw every single person into. And as I thought about it, I thought, isn't that amazing? God has put this sign in every country, in every through every age and every culture. And in God's perfect plan, I know it doesn't always work out like this, but in his plan at the heart of every family. And the Pope wasn't saying that, you know, it's just through perfect marriages, because if so, there wouldn't be a sign at all. There is no perfect marriage. Marriage is always challenging. Family life is always messy. But it's God's design and plan to work through 
every single marriage. And that's why this is relevant to every single one of us. And no wonder there is a spiritual battle over marriage. And you know, whether you're married or not, whether you're divorced, whether you're in a relationship or not, we as Christians can help to change the narrative around marriage. That, that it's not irrelevant in our society. It, it, we're not to fear the commitment of a lifelong relationship of a marriage. And this is part of the mission, we believe, of the local church, to change the narrative around marriage. That's why Sil and I are going to continue to do all we can to equip local churches around the country and around the world with tools that they can use to give people, just like Fiona, who I quoted earlier, confidence about marriage. Confidence. Falling in love. Courtship. Marriage, they all of them point to God's desire for us. Did you know that Jesus fell in love with you before you were born? He gave himself for you on the cross out of his love. And he comes to draw you to himself, to give you that living water. It's like he spoke to the Samaritan woman about the Holy Spirit that would be like a spring bubbling up inside you. He heals bruised hearts. He restores us to his original plan. He gives new hope. And to some, like that Samaritan woman who have lost trust, gives the ability to trust again. And he shows us what true love looks like. Would you like to stand, please?